So welcome to another episode of the Leadership and Nick, where I'm laughing already because I've got a good friend with me uh, today. Um, now, you know I've done some work, if you've been listening to the episodes, on human-centered leadership. And there are seven components to human-centered leadership. And one of those is presence. And so the question today is, what do we mean by presence in a leadership capacity? Is it actually to contribute outside of our own needs? Well, I need someone wiser than me in order to have that discussion and perhaps land on some answers. So just stay with me for this intro and then we're going to come back to me chatting to the wise Chris Clark. In a constantly changing world, today is as simple as it gets. You're listening to The Leadership Enigma, a podcast to explore, experiment and power up your leadership to make the difference to your business, your people and your success. Whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner or corporate executive, each week we dig deep into global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts and disruptors. Now, here's your host, Adam Pacifico. Hey, hey, and it's a big welcome to Chris Clark to the Leadership Enigma. Chris, how are you, my friend? I'm well, Adam. How are you? I'm very good. Uh, and it's a real delight to have you on this because I know that you are in Atlanta right now. I am indeed. Yeah. And I know that we tried, uh, well, before the pandemic to meet up and have dinner when I was in Atlanta. It didn't quite happen. So uh, I've gone for the next best thing. I'm, I'm looking at you now on video conference and got you here for this podcast episode. So thank you very much for doing that. Really excited to be here. Yeah. Now, Chris, you and I have known each other for a few years now because we met on an amazing leadership development program for the organization UCB Pharma that you work for at the moment. But I know you've moved into a new role. So just help us understand what's the role that you've got at the moment within that organization? Yeah. So thanks for that. I am um, working right now with a team of experts as we build a rare disease capability at UCB and specifically building that around a couple of assets that are around uh, three years, two to three years from the marketplace right. uh, for an array of different rare diseases. And uh, we're, we're, we're building those assets and development and building our teams and capabilities to prepare for launch all in tandem and uh, getting ready for um, hopefully a real transformation in the history uh, of UCB. UCB is a company with um, lots of transformation in its background uh, started from uh, a very diverse background coming through primary care pharma, specialty pharma, and now moving into rare diseases. And it's, uh, it's an exciting time to be uh, kind of on the tip of the spear of that, that next transformation. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I think it must be amazing to work in a role where you are developing things which are actually going to be an incredible force for good for people all over the world, I imagine. Yeah, it's, um, you know, there are 7,000 uh, different rare diseases out there, millions of people that wow. suffer, but the math uh, immediately suggests that there's not many in each, and that is how we get to the label of rare diseases. But what that really means is collections of people with severe unmet needs, and, um, and typically they're overlooked by research uh, environments or by policy environments, and, uh, and including uh, by financial interest that would drive a pharma company. And so it's, it takes a very focused business model and a very purposeful approach. Uh, and it also, one of the things I love about working in rare diseases is it requires a genuine engagement with the community. And uh, gotcha. it, it, it requires us to work in partnership with the community to develop these products. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, Chris, everyone's got a story, you know, that kind of led you to the role that you have now. But it kind of in a mm -hmm. nutshell, did you always intend or know you were going to end up in pharma or 
How did this journey no, start? No, gosh, no, gosh, no. So it's, uh, I got lucky, if you will. Um, I trained as a product designer, Adam, um, and worked in that field for a few years. Right. Um, and at that point was kind of honing skills around trying to understand a root problem, understand the constituents um, and, and stakeholders, if you will, of solutions and think about how to create better better uh, alternatives to the way that we do things and applying that in a completely different industry. And uh, at a certain point in time, um, wanted to get into something where I could apply those skills closer to uh, the impact of, of people and gotcha. um, started my career at UCB nearly 21 years ago wow. and have evolved that career up to this point where uh, I had the good fortune of working with um, a selection of folks that are true experts yep. in diverse fields, uh, whether that be medical, product development, uh, commercial marketeers. And um, so it's really been quite a journey to start from <clears throat> kind of just a, an elemental understanding of problem and solution and to bring that forward. I think when I first joined the company, I, I put that propos- proposition forward to the original hiring manager. And it must have sounded insane 21 years 21, ago. 21, I can't uh, believe 21 years ago, Chris. You know, so it's, uh, you, you want to use your design degree at a pharma company. What are you thinking? And, uh, and yet, uh, here we are. It's, uh, it's turned out to be quite, it's quite a ride. Now, so, you've, now, forgive me, you've been in leadership roles within UCB for a number of years now. Just give us an idea, what's the remit of the new role that you've got within the organization? Yeah, so the, in the new role, I'm looking after asset strategy for um, two different um, molecules that we're developing and thinking about as, as we build our capabilities in rare diseases, how might we deploy those further? So understanding organic and inorganic growth that we may be able to generate. Right. So looking after um, a team of folks that are um, they're helping us think through the best way to maximize these assets and then also how we can maximize the capabilities that we're building. And I assume you're, you're having to lead people across region. I mean, we're all virtual right now, but you're having to Truly global, deal with, yeah, team, with people who are everywhere. Yeah. The team is on multiple continents, multiple time zones. Um, and I tell you, that's one of the real struggles of the pandemic is keeping connection. Uh, it's not simple. You know, when you've got folks arrayed across uh, London, Brussels, Hong Kong, Boston, yeah. Atlanta, um, it's uh, it's easier said than done. Now, definitely. this leads me into the, the real focus for today because I knew I wanted to do something on presence and the title of this episode is Presence Has Value. And Chris, you were the person who came to the forefront of my thinking because I'm going to take us back now. We were involved, you were a participant uh, and I was privileged to be working with UCB on the Orchestrate Leadership Development Program where I met mm-hmm. an amazing group of people and you were one of them. But there was something very unique about that program, which required the participants to travel to Rwanda. And there were other countries, I know, but specifically I'm going to focus on Rwanda because you went to Rwanda and Mm. I went to Rwanda. Just help the listeners understand why was Rwanda a country of choice for executives from the the organization to travel to? Yeah, so I think that there's... um there's a historical connection between uh, Belgium, the, the B and UCB yep. is uh, Belgium and, um, and multiple countries in, um, in Sub-Saharan Africa, including uh, Rwanda. And then in this case, our company has done an amazing job of trying to create a footprint from which we can improve neurological care in Rwanda. And so the company is engaged in um, helping train physicians, helping supply medicines, helping to engage at the community health level, if you will, yeah. 
um, to see if specifically in epilepsy, which is a, an area of great uh, heritage for UCB, um, if we can't uh, make some impact. And um, so as a part of that, there's a realization within the company that what we're doing there is is really special. And um, you can imagine there's a clamor of people that would love to go and see or experience and everything. And the company has created uh, different venues for folks that as a part of their development can go and, and see um, and experience um, exactly some of the, the efforts that UCB is putting forth. Now, I know that the participants and, and we as the faculty, we flew into Kigali. That's right, isn't it? And mm-hmm. we, and yeah, then we, indeed, yeah. We stayed locally and then we traveled into the townships and the rural areas which were a world apart from Atlanta or London, a mm. world apart. I, I don't think I can quite put it into words. I, I will say, Chris, and I don't know whether you agree with me on this, we had about two or three days in Rwanda. I think for me, I changed. It was such an extraordinary, powerful experience. I think I changed. I, what kind mm. of impact did that, did that trip have on you? Zero doubt I changed. Um, I would tell you that I went there uh, almost with a tourist mindset. Now, my yeah. mind at this point, the orchestra program had already served to uh, sufficiently open up my thinking a little bit. And I was certainly prepared for an experience, which I think is part of getting something out of anything. Yeah. But I would say that I had no idea uh, what the, the experience would offer me. And indeed, um, you're transported to something that's completely different. Um, and it's easy to think of um, Kigali or even the more rural areas as um, behind or um, uh, underserved or yeah. whatever label you might want to put on it. But in some ways, it's so beautiful. Oh, and the culture there is so rich. The people. And there are little details like the fact that their government is overpopulated with the voices of women in leadership. Uh, in their government is they they represent women better than practically any other country on the planet and yeah. so on some ways you have to kind of step back from you know is this uh is this behind what we're used to and think of it as parallel almost yeah. and, and uh just different it's different i remember when they were preparing us to go and I, i'm with you i had no idea really <laughs> what to expect and, and i think i took the tourist mindset shame on me and I think I fell in love with the country as well. One of the things yeah. that, that struck me, Chris, was I needed to start to unlearn before I could relearn. So some of the yeah. assumptions and biases and things that I thought would work, could work, should work, in London, in Atlanta, they were not appropriate in Rwanda. Yeah. Did you have that no. experience too? Totally. Um, you know, and for me, it culminates in what was a six or seven day trip uh, multiple cities and environments and, yeah. you know, the classic moving around hotels and everything else, but it all for me draws a focus into um, one particular moment. And there was one afternoon we were in the North um, of the, uh, of the country and uh, for geographical reference, for those that may be familiar with the movie gorillas in the mist, yes. those are on the side, the, those gorillas literally live on the side of a few volcanic cones right up on the Northern border with Uganda. And um, near there, there's a small town called Musanzi. And uh, that was kind of our uh, jumping off point, if you will, mm-hmm. for day trips, truly into the rural countryside um, to visit a couple of uh, regional health clinics. Now, Chris, I just and, when we say rural, yeah. this is many of these townships, people are walking many kilometers to 
a work or uh, basic utilities. There's no yes, power. Indeed. There's no yes. heating. There's no nothing. There's no nothing. It's very common to see people literally carrying uh, a five-gallon container yeah. down a hill to a, uh, a runoff uh, ditch, if you will, um, to collect their day's water Yeah, and walk back up the hill um, with their day's water. So it's literally... Um, it's a, it's a level of, um, convenience, if you will, that we can't relate to, um, the, the, the typical daily life is just completely different. And so in this one particular afternoon, we went to, um, a, a clinic, um, in Gataraga, which is a a small little town that I'm sure I'm not pronouncing correctly, but uh, (laughs) better than I would, Chris, (laughs) I'm doing my best. And, um, you know, in advance of us arriving, of course, you don't just show up at a healthcare clinic with a, a group of um, executives um, that uh, want to learn. So the word had been put out that there was a group coming right. that were experts in epilepsy. And um, if you have epilepsy, maybe come see them. Now, what we expected as we walked in was to have one or two interviews um, with maybe a patient, maybe a caregiver, maybe a, a local healthcare worker, almost a, a traditional uh, healer, if you will, yes. in their village. Um, we'll come back uh, to that as well, Chris. Very important role. The, the traditional say. health uh, healers were, uh, they're an extraordinary powerful group as well, aren't they? Extraordinary. They're, they're like a core uh, element in most of the, of the communities. These aren't medics and, either, people should realize. These are faith healers, aren't they? Community they, in healers. many cases, yeah, these yeah. are faith healers, and they they have the the one hundred percent confidence of their mm. of their community, and um and so instead of us being set up to have an interview or two, yeah. this word went out wholesale. If you have epilepsy, come there are experts, and so unbeknownst to us, we walk into the clinic, and I found myself sat in a room with one of my colleagues. Um, and folks started streaming in uh, through the through the door uh, to this meeting that they understood was uh, more of a presentation, I suppose. And um, and we had one translator and the two of us. Neither one of us is a medic, by the way. Um, but we're both in this orchestrate program, and so we've <laughs> we've got all the chops uh, of uh, corporate world, you know. Yeah. And so we've been selected for this program, uh, and, and we uh, we we see the folks just keep coming and keep coming. And they're coming as families. They're coming with their uh, traditional healers. Right. They're coming with um, their friends. And as this, the room grows, they begin to go into other rooms and grab benches and bring them in. And they're forming this circle is forming around us wow. in real time. And you can imagine um, it's as unprepared as I've ever felt in my life. Right. And so I, I've gone through all these experiences, some with you and some with others and, and you know, my career has led me up to this point where I feel like I'm leading a really important team yeah. and I'm shaping something really important for the company and maybe even for healthcare in general if we're lucky. And yet in this moment, I had nothing to offer. None of those tools had value. And I found myself becoming increasingly uncomfortable. Right. It was a surreal experience. It's how you, you know, I, I can't express to you how much um, I felt inadequate in that moment and the folks kept coming and the crowd grew and the next thing you know the room is full and people are standing all around us and they're telling their stories adam 
and they're relaying them through a translator, but they're expressing to us these stories about um, <clears throat> how epilepsy has changed their lives. Yeah. And they're telling us how um, they've been kicked out of their homes. Their neighbors um, would beat them thinking that they were possessed or their one young man that I'll never forget tells me <clears throat> he left his school at 16 years old. He was doing quite well. And he didn't want to make his friends sick because he didn't understand that his epilepsy wasn't contagious, but he quit school to protect his friends. It was an extraordinary lack of understanding of epilepsy. I mean, there was a belief, wasn't there, that you could beat epilepsy out of someone. Absolutely. Someone was possessed and therefore you could take that approach. Or that maybe if you can't, then you should get away from that person. Or, you know, it's just really the the lack of understanding is profound. Yeah. and in that moment, um, none of my training was valuable. None of my understanding was helpful. I'm not a medic. Uh, I don't have medicine with me. I have nothing to offer. I just have to sit there and try to, my, and you can imagine the analytical side of my brain is going at light speed, trying to figure out uh, what to do. Yeah. And it's a near panic moment. And at, out of nowhere, and this is the moment of focus for me. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no trainer like experience, right? And out of nowhere, I hear a sound from the side of the room and I'm sat on one of these benches, literally, uh, touching my colleague next to me. We're, we're all packed in here and just a few people over this little girl has uh, a seizure begins right in the room and in the room, literally a few people over and, um, for those that don't know that might be listening, a, a very typical presentation of a seizure is called a GTC, a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. The tonic phase is the beginning. Right. And many times that'll result in a, a, like a full contraction of all the muscles of the body, including the diaphragm. And so this sound is made as the air is expressed because of the contraction of the diaphragm. And, you know, there's this really kind of a haunting sound uh, as the seizure begins. And I heard the sound and I looked and I saw the tonic phase move into the clonic phase and the convulsions began for this little girl. And she fell to the floor, um, literally at my feet, six inches from, from the feet of me and my colleague in front of us. And I've been around enough seizures. I've been working, uh, trying to help epilepsy patients as, um, you know, from my post at a pharma company for um, literally over a decade and a half now. So I had a sense of, you know, what that means in that moment and, you know, make the person comfortable, make sure that they're not going to hurt themselves, time the seizure, observe carefully what you see. And and so my my training kind of kicked in and we remained calm and someone put something under her head and and, um, we paused for a moment and then her traditional healer came and picked her up very gently and cared for her and, and took her to a bed elsewhere in the clinic where she could rest. And we carried on. And the, the folks in the room for the next hour and a half, two hours continued to tell us stories. And they told us about how some had walked four and a half hours one way to see us that day wow. and how, um, some of them had never been in a room with other people that had epilepsy like them. And by the way, as an aside, this is something I've heard all over the place. I've heard this in 
Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I've heard this in Brussels, Belgium. Um, the epilepsy patients don't feel connected to each other. They don't understand that there there's a commonality. And when they, you bring them together, it's an awakening right. when they learn that there are other people like them. Pretty comforting. And so I'm watching this happen in front of me. I'm seeing these folks connect as they've come from all points in the countryside in a way that they never had before. And I began to understand that maybe there was some value um, in what was happening here that I wouldn't was not prepared for, despite all my preparation and training. And the most amazing thing happened at the end of the meeting. Continental Europe, you know, kiss on the cheek in the U.S., a handshake. If you're younger, maybe it's, you know, one of these. In Sub-Saharan Africa, the tradition is that they touch the sides of their heads to each other. Right. And as a form of a greeting, like a handshake, but also a sign of respect. And as folks started to stand up and the meeting started to, to break up, uh, they began to come over and touch their heads to, to mine and to my colleagues um, and, and to say thank you. Wow. And it was a, the emotions were so raw in the, the realization that what I thought was what I bring in value was actually misunderstood by me. Yeah. And what really happened in that moment was that allowing that moment to happen, fostering that moment, fostering that connection for those people was really an amazing experience for everyone in the room. And so that, that concept of presence has value um, is something that I will be uh, completely honest with you. I, I find myself trying to apply on a very regular basis, weekly at a minimum. Yeah. I'm thinking through um, presence has value. How do I think about that in this scenario? Wow. Now, it's, uh, it's, I've carried it with for, for all this time, definitely. I, I'm going to ask you some questions about that because how you've transferred that back into the business, I think, is, is a really important kind of story to hear. Mm. But just for the avoidance of doubt, whilst you were actually in Rwanda, you're, you can't speak the language, you're not medically qualified, Mm-mm. and actually you had to almost fight through your own fear of feeling inadequately prepared to deal with the situation that was kind of happening around you. How long did it last in total, that session? Oh, this was uh, over the course of probably three hours. Wow. Um, so it wasn't so, a, a short, sharp experience. No, this was an, a, no, there a was prolonged run. Wow. Yeah. And so with all of that, there's, there's limited things that you could do at the time. That's really the thing that comes out of this. That's exactly right. Yeah, the options were very few. Um, and out of respect for the people yeah. and respect for uh, their investment in that moment, um, there was no option but to carry on and to see what happens, if you will. Chris, um, do you think there was yeah. a time during that three-hour window where you realized that you could provide something, that your mere presence and the respect that you were showing them and their stories and how they were expressing that to you. Do you think there was a moment in the three hours where you, where you thought, no, there is something I can do. I can add value here. You know, I think it was the moment of crisis and the fact that we, we came through it. Okay. Right. It was, it was a, a pure moment of crisis. Uh, there's a, there's a, a little girl having a seizure right in front of us. And, you know, I'm already as sensitized as possible, completely full of adrenaline. This is a crisis. And calm 
um, was sufficient and caring was sufficient in that crisis. And then we moved on. And the fact that the room didn't scatter or everyone didn't say, oh, I thought they were doctors and they leave or anything, we carried on. And I think for me, that was the moment that the 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 vector switched if you will yeah and, and for it was really locked in when they showed for me the traditional sense of respect um and they came over and touched their heads and said thank you um and for me that was a that was a, an awakening moment it was uh, really a transformation it's high praise indeed isn't it for for oh, that level of respect I, to be to be shown to you now it's been a few years since uh, our experiences in Rwanda. So how have you taken that back into the business? And you're in in Atlanta and, you know, back doing what you do. So how has that experience now translated itself into presence has value as a senior leader within a a, a global pharmaceutical company? Well, you know, a couple of ways. I think, first of all, there's a there's a realization that comes with really experiencing uh, something like that, that most things we think are crisis are probably not that bad. Um, And so a little bit of calm is not only helpful, it's probably warranted, you know, just remain calm sometimes. I think that's number one. But for me, more importantly, um, as my career has advanced Mm -hmm. and my my remit has broadened, um, there's only so many areas of a very complex business like pharmaceuticals that you could be expert in. And as you take on broader remits, the likelihood is strong that you will have to rely on the expertise of others and you will have to remain calm and trusting and um, some days courageous, um, even when um, you're, you're not the expert and you have to rely on, on others. And so I think that for me, the way it translates most clearly is Surrounding yourself, I, I say as many other hiring managers do, I suspect, I always try to hire people that are smarter than me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's what I'm looking for every time. And it's sometimes it's easier to do than others, I will say. But, you know, when you, you go out and you hire a selection of experts, true experts, um, it's okay to watch them be experts. It's okay to just have the simplicity of my job is to bring resources, remove barriers, confirm strategy, um, provide inspiration, but not to be an expert. My job is not um, to come in and and try to fix things or to uh, have the next great idea sometimes. Or the answer all the time. It's it's not on you, is uh, it? It's not on you. It's, uh, It's maybe it's on you just to be present. Now, obviously, presence alone is not enough, but uh, the sense of calm and the sense of trust in the moment and the sense of understanding that with the right folks, um, it's going to be okay yeah. and you're going to do great. Um, I think it's a powerful leadership tool. It really is. Being able to control your own fear a little bit there is really helpful. And have you seen a difference in those people that you lead or you're most closely connected to in, in your leadership that as you've had this approach, you've, you've been through this experience that there's been an impact on them too. I think so. You know, I think some people are more, more equipped for that style of leadership than others. Right. And, um, you know, I do encounter people that prefer a more directive uh, style of leadership. And um, that's okay as long as that's part of an open uh, conversation. 
And um, I'm noticing now <laughs> the sun has arrived in Atlanta, in case you're wondering. I can see. Um, I'm, I'm jealous, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a nice day here. The um, I think that, you know, of course, you, you come across folks that um, prefer, prefer a more directive style of leadership, and maybe they're on their own journey of learning and, uh, and, and building their own confidence um, to act more freely. But I think for those true experts, those real leaders that you want to surround yourself with, um, there's, uh, they thrive in those types of environments. And I see that. I see folks um, that are surprising in how uh, effective and um, ingenious they can be yeah. um, when you allow them the room to go and, and really express themselves. I think of it as in the best case scenario, you're allowing folks to unfold their talent. Like and um, it's beautiful to watch that. It really is. And um, it's the type of thing that as I grow and develop, I'm a, I'm a classic type A. I'm fairly competitive in most things that I do. Um, and it's uh, it's great every once in a while to just stand back and watch uh, someone else really perform. Which and, is, um, which is yeah. sometimes for a, a classic type A, not the default setting. It's <laughs> not the default setting. No, no, no. Now, whilst I've got you here, I, I mean, it's, it's probably fair to say that, that Rwanda had a profound impact on all of us and there were multiple mm. cohorts who who went out and i know dirk was our leader for this experience and i'm going to reach out to dirk and and and, and again i was trying to thank him for what was an incredible experience it's worth mentioning isn't it that for those that don't know if there's, in 1994 obviously rwanda suffered the genocide where i think it was about 800,000 people were murdered in 100 days so it has a brutal past which is not very long ago and mm. they are now an extraordinary nation of resilience compassion empathy resourcefulness i was blown away by their resourcefulness chris where they have no resources but you and i also went at different times to the genocide museum which is beyond i think verbal description certainly beyond my ability to describe it now and i remember coming out there were two of us who went round it and we got back into the suv and we were simply unable to verbalize what we had just experienced and i know i think you had a similar experience but i just want you to ask you this question because i'm linking it again to presence because there was that moment where we had to just be present with our own thoughts and reflections before almost we could verbalize anything i don't know did you have that same experience yeah it's uh, there's a point at which it becomes so genuine and so authentic mm. that it's almost um, on some level stifling and uh, you feel how could you possibly put a phrase over the top of this or try to summarize uh, what you experienced when you are immersed in something that is so raw yeah. and so complete in its horror in this case, but so complete in its human expression it's, it was really, I felt um, that I just did not have words um, to capture what I had experienced. And even to this day, it would be really hard to tell someone what they're going to feel uh, when they go through that, that museum. No, I agree. Um, that, that experience. You know, there is one thing that I took out of it, uh, though, just one kind of a tactile element uh, that I don't know if you saw, Adam, but um one of the things that I love about the people, one of many things that I love about the people of Rwanda is the way that they settled up afterwards. And you can imagine how torn mm. their communities were. Families 
that literally had uh, murdered each other, yeah. neighbors that didn't trust each other, and uh, just the the worst on some level of humanity that, that they had endured. And they settled it with, in many cases, in the smaller communities with a process called gachacha. And uh, that's actually, uh, and I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering the language, but and my apologies for that, but it's a type of grass um, that grows in Rwanda. Right. And the, they, they formed these uh, neighborhood courts and they would all go and sit on the grass and talk about what happened. And the community would come to an agreement on what's the best way to move forward here. And that's how they, they created resolution, just by connecting with each other. Let's go and let's go sit down in the yard, in the park, in the grass, out in front of uh, someone's house, whatever, and let's talk this through. And what an amazing lesson. I see so many areas professionally, societally, personally, uh, for that lesson to be applied. It's uh, it's an amazing uh, aspect of their culture that just, it's really, it's enviable, frankly. Yeah, and I, and I say I do feel very, very privileged to have had that experience. And, and as you're telling the story, I've almost got chills, Chris, because I remember very well the visceral experience that we went through uh, when we were traveling through. And just the immense compassion, I come back to that, the immense compa- compassion that they had for each other. I actually think that maybe that Kigali trip was the start for my investigation into human-centered leadership. And that's something that, you know, continuing to look at and continuing to focus on. And I know that presence is one of the component parts. I hope one of the component parts. So many, many leaders, Chris, won't have had the experience that you or I had in Kigali. I think everybody should because it it was life-changing. But what might be your best advice to a leader? And that might be new in leadership, senior, inexperienced in leadership. Would there be any advice that you would have top of mind in relation to them considering presence having real value in the workplace? So, you know, I don't know if this necessarily falls into the category as discrete advice, but I can tell you one of the ways I'm thinking about it is, you know, we're, we're at quite an inflection point as a society right now on so many fronts. And uh, we, we see, so much dynamism in the way that we think about culture and the way that we think about our planet and our roles and, and our societies. And I, I think of that as a real opportunity for us if we embrace it in the right way, if we take our traditional constructs and apply those um, I think that, you know, we'll have the same challenges that we've always had. But when we think about things like sustainability Um, And it's easy for those to be categorized as buzzwords. But for me, um, as a leader, I want to be present in the context that we're using here. I want to be present in that dialogue. I don't I don't want that to be um, something that is a box I check or an objective I hit, uh, you know, in my in my annual uh, responsibilities. I want to think of that as my contribution, my presence there has value. And maybe that looks a little bit like putting my heart into it or trying harder, or maybe that looks a little bit like being more creative and allowing others to be creative, empowering folks to do things that really matter. You know, specifically in healthcare, we have a real challenge to figure out. And, um, and, you know, the, some of the models that are created globally right now are not sustainable. 
And I think there's an opportunity to think very deeply about the, the, uh, the, the beautiful miracles, frankly, that, that come off of the bench in science and how we can find more people that can benefit from those is, um, is a challenge that will require all of us to be present. And if we, if we all attack that challenge in the traditional ways, um, we, might, we might find ourselves with the same limitations in the future that we have today. But I think there's a real opportunity. And I, you know, the iron is hot, if you will, and yeah. it's ready for shaping. And um, so well, that's, for me, the way I think. Wow, no, that's great advice. But, and, and pharma is right in the epicenter of many people's focus, isn't it, as we now start to vaccinate as fast as we can in is, order to bring yeah. the world out of a, a shared experience, which, which is a global pandemic. Now, Chris, I was going to finish on an, another question, but I've changed my mind because I just think the <laughs> advice you gave right then is, is wonderful and was the perfect and fitting way to actually end this episode in relation to presence has value. And there are so many things that we could talk about and link it to Rwanda. We've only just really uh, skimmed the surface, but I just wanted to say a massive thank you for sharing that story because I've heard that story. Um, it always resonated with me. And as I say, when I thought about presence, you and that story came to the forefront of my of my thoughts. So I just want to say maybe you'll uh, consider coming back and chatting again to the Leadership Enigma and we'll share to. some more stories in relation to leadership. You have been a superstar. Yeah, thanks, Adam. It was a pleasure. And well, I'd be glad to come back anytime. Yeah. Thank you so much, Chris. Join us again next week for more essential insights on the Leadership Enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show, as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with your host on LinkedIn or via our website, www.pca-global.com. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for listening.